Amen. If you have a Bible, we're in Romans chapter 1 tonight. We'll pick up in verse number 24. We read through 25 last week. We'll pick up at 24, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse number 11 tonight. Uh, and these two passages, the rest of chapter 1 and then chapter 2, they, they kind of seem like they don't go together, but there is a very uh, important connection that we're going to make as we transition from one chapter to another. Uh, we are in week 3 of our Bible study that we're calling Crossroads. And the reason why it's called Crossroads is uh, for a couple different reasons. Uh, number one, it's because Romans is an intersection. Romans is a crossroads of every biblical thread. So if you want a book that summarizes the whole Bible, uh, Romans is number one. Hebrews is pretty close second, but Romans, I think I would refer to anybody. If you want a book that helps you understand what the other 65 books are all about, Romans is that book. It makes sense and fulfills the purpose of every Old Testament event law and hero. If you want to know why the Old Testament is given to us, Romans helps you understand that and interprets it for you and helps you understand how to read it. Um, And also Romans is going to flesh out and further explain the New Testament message and mission, which uh, of course the gospel and and the church that Jesus is building. Now obviously all of that comes together not just in the form of an intersection or a crossroads, but in the cross of Jesus Christ, hence the pun cross. Roads, uh, the cross of Jesus is the intersection of world history. Everything, and I mean everything, runs through the cross and can be understood or should be understood under its shadow. And we'll talk a lot about that tonight. Uh, Romans 1 begins by talking about the subject of God's righteousness. And we defined righteousness a few weeks ago as a right standing with God. What it means to be right with God. And Romans 1 talks about, um, you know, that in the Old Testament we were told that none of us are right with God. That there is none that has, uh, you know, walked with God as they should. And all of us are fallen, yet the cross is the way all of us can be made right with God can be reconciled to God. It's in and of and through the cross and on the cross that God redeemed and reconciled all of us to himself. We are given a right standing through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is really the the, the thesis of Romans. When we get chapter 5 through chapter 8, that is going to be the message week after week after week. And we're going to see different angles of the cross and different points of the cross. But the, the, the opening of Romans is that God is right righteous and we are not and we need a right standing with him if we are to be saved. So we began last week by talking beginning to talk about why we need to be saved and what it means to be unrighteous and what are the ramifications of being unrighteous and we found out that it's not a good place to be. It's not a good shape to be in. Um, The the verses that we looked at last week do an incredible job, I think, um, at explaining what makes us unrighteous. And in short, uh, I, I think this is a good, exp- a good short uh, explanation. Our nature rejects God as Lord. So the reason why we are unrighteous, the reason why we are not right with God, is our nature rejects God as Lord. And we'll never be right with God if we don't have a right understanding of who God is and a right relationship or a right posture before God. Our nature rejects that God is our superior, that God is our sovereign, that God is our Lord. Our nature says, I don't need a Lord. I don't need a superior. I don't need someone giving me uh, rules. I don't need an 
authority. I am autonomous. I make my own rules. I can call my own shot. Our nature says, I don't need that. No, thank you. How, you know, give me something else to feel bad about because I'm not going to feel bad about that because I, uh, I, I don't believe that. Our nature rejects that God is Lord and as a result, we have replaced him with lesser idols and goals because the thing that we don't want to admit about ourselves, we want to pretend like, we want to think that we are autonomous, as in we are self, you know, uh, we, get, we have our own authority, we make our own rules, we answer to nobody. But all of us, who are we kidding? All of us serve somebody and something. All of us have idols and have goals bigger or beyond ourselves. We all answer to somebody. We all serve somebody or something. And our nature wants us to think that we don't need God because we are on our own. All the while, we definitely serve lesser idols and we definitely serve lesser goals. And that's the deceptive thing about sin. Sin makes us feel like we're empowered and we're sufficient in ourselves, yet we still grovel before idols and altars of this world. The great verse from the last week's passage was verse 23, where the Apostle Paul says that we have exchanged, uh, we have changed, or we have exchanged the glory of God for lesser things, for something that is incorrupt, for something that is corruptible. We have exchanged God's glory for shame. It's like when you get a gift at Christmas that you don't need or you didn't ask for, or maybe you already have, and you go and exchange it for something else. But who in the world would go up to the counter and say, give me something of lesser value? Who would go up to the counter and say, I was given this gift of great value. Do you have something that's less valuable and I don't care about the difference? None of us would do that. That would be foolish to do that. But that is what Paul says we are doing when we reject God and embrace somebody or something else. We're exchanging God's glory for something shameful, something that is corruptible, something that will fade and pass away, something that does not give us what only God does. Now, we looked briefly at the two verses that follow this indictment, uh, verse 24 and 25, and we're going to pick back up there uh, and read through verse 28, uh, because these, this larger passage um, that, these, that the 24 and 25 belong to, these larger, this larger passage is going to carry us through the end of the chapter, uh, and I want to focus on the fallout from the fall. We talked last week about the fall of man, the fall of Adam and Eve that led to us all being infected by sin and, 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 and you know, uh, covered in sin, buried in sin. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about the fallout of the fall that Paul has just detailed. And we're going to notice that in verse 24, 26, and 28... Paul uses the same phrase to describe uh, the same phrase to describe the result of our indifference to God. So we're going to read uh, 24 through the end of this chapter, and I want you to see if you can pick up on and you can detect. And I'm pretty sure you can see if you can pay, so you can notice the phrase that's repeated in those three verses. And each of these three verses are beginning their own section. So 24, 25 to go together, 26, 27 go together, and then 28 through 32 go together. So that's why in each of those three, we see this phrase repeated. See if you can pick up on it. Therefore, so we've just been told that we've exchanged God's glory for something less. We've exchanged glory for shame. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. 
who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their woman, women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also men, leaving the unnatural use of women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which is due. And even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind or a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers or gossipers uh, because nobody gossips out loud, right? We gossip behind in, in the background or in the down low, right? Uh, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, as in there's going to continue to be more ways to, to, to do bad things invented. Disobedient to parents, which is kind of a odd, doesn't seem as egregious, but is as according to Paul. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, just rapid fire there. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. As in, not only do we do those things, but we look at others who do those things and we think, well, there's no big deal or there's not a, it's not a great offense or, you know, well, I do that too, so I don't really want to be critical of them because that will be critical of me. Now, if you picked up on it, verse 24, 25, 26, and 28, we see this phrase repeated that's up here on the screen. God gave them up to, or maybe your translation says God gave them over to, but the Greek is the same. That the Greek phrase for those uh, five words that you see in yellow, the, in the Greek, that's one word. It's the Greek word paradokin. Para means alongside of. Dokin means handed over to. And again, in the Greek, that word is used in the New Testament for handing something over to somebody or betraying someone. Now, if you read the Gospels and if you were reading in the Greek, you would see this very word in the chapter where John the Baptist is handed over to Herod. It says that he was paradokened. And then when Judas hands over Jesus' information to the temple guards, when he tells the priests, hey, this is where he's at, he paradokens, he hands him over, he betrays him to the authorities. Now, don't get too concerned. This is not saying that God betrays us, but it is saying something similar to that. It's speaking of us having already betrayed ourselves and God by the unholy exchange that we've made. Again, back in verse 23, we've exchanged the glory of God for an image made like corruptible things. We, in, in verse 25, we have, uh, or verse 25, it says, we exchange the truth of God for the lie and we serve the creature over the creator. So this is God's response to our rejection of him. This is God's response to our betraying ourselves and him. If that's your wish, then so be it. Now you may think, well, is that really the nature of God? Don't, don't worry, we're gonna really unpack something brilliant and beautiful from this, I think. In his sovereignty, God is the one who has the last say over our lives. So it's not just us saying to God, I don't need you anymore, I'm done. It's God who opens the door for us and says, I'll see you out. 
this isn't just speaking of you or individually individuals rejecting God. This is human nature. This is human, the human race. This is what God did to Adam and Eve that every human has been following through ever since. This is not what God does to individuals because we are born in sin. We don't become sinners. We are born sinners. So I don't want you to think that this is something that happens to everyone whenever they get a certain age. God says, okay, I'm done, or you're done, go on. This is what we are born into. This is kind of a, a, a picture of what all of us suffered as a result of Adam's sin. That God sees humanity rejecting him, betraying him, and betraying ourselves, and God says, here is the door. And he hands us over to sin. The reason for which this is even possible in the world is that God made us with a choice. God made Adam and Eve with a choice. They were not made as robots. They were made with a decision to make. They were made with a will of their own. He did not force Adam and Eve to serve him. He gave them a choice. But there's something else at play. Alongside our free will is God's good and sovereign will. So yes, you and I have a free will to choose or choose not. But God is good and sovereign alongside that. God was willing and always is willing that we would choose him, yet he never forces anybody to choose him. God does not force anyone to accept him. Because he is sovereign, if we reject him, this is, this is I think, is brilliant and, and really beyond us. Because God is sovereign, if you reject him, he still claims ownership over you and over the choice that you make. Do you understand that? That when you say, I don't want you, I don't want to believe, or I'm not going to follow, God still sees you as his creature. So God is the one that ultimately allows you to leave or allows you to reject or allows you to depart from him. It may be your decision, but God takes authority and ownership over you because he made you. Now, you may wonder, why would God do that? And if God has that authority over us, why wouldn't he stop us? Don't worry. There's something on the other side of this that we'll get to. But I want you to understand that God gave humanity a free will. And Adam and Eve freely chose to reject God. And the cycle of Romans 1, 18 through 32 began for all of us. And it's in God's sovereign will that he gave us over to the ramifications of that choice. So let me explain. God did not shelter us from the consequences of choosing sin. He turned us over to sin. He turned us over. So when you think about it, we did not just say, okay, God don't want you, I'm gone. God said, no, 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 I'm sovereign over you. If you refuse, you reject me, I'm opening the door. I'm the one that's allowing you to leave my presence because I ultimately am still your God. Reject me if you want to, but I still claim that you're mine. Now, we're getting into some pretty sacred and, and precious things that we're talking about when we understand the sovereignty of God. Our minds can't really comprehend it. So don't feel bad if it's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around or wrap your hands around. But God says, I'm not going to shelter you from the consequences. He hands us over to the effects. Now, I want you to, I'm, I'm sure you're wondering, why would God do that? You know what God is trying to communicate to us in this? That above all, he is a merciful God. Because mercy does not force itself on anyone. It's not in God's nature to force himself. It's in God's merciful nature to permit. But here's what really is at work in this. 
God's handing humanity over, God's handing over humanity to sin, obliging our decision to reject him, is at its core an expression of his mercy. He didn't force people to choose him. He turned us loose when we rejected him. And this is what what might be the most mind-blowing thing you'll consider in a long while. The very mercy that opened the door for us to leave is the same mercy that holds the door open for our return. Can you, can you see that? That it's in God's mercy to allow us to choose, but the very mercy that opens the door and says, if that's what you want, fine, is the very mercy that holds the door, welcoming us to come back. So it's God's hands us over to our nature and a behavior that's unbecoming for a, a, of who he made us to be, who he wills us to be, who he desires us to be. He wants us to know when we begin to deal with unwelcome consequences of sin that it's our rejection that left us in sin and with sin. And he wants us to know that everything about sin and what it does to us betrays the very idea of what it means to be human, the very idea of what it means to belong to him. Because sin is wearing away at God's image. Sin brings shame to where God wanted dignity. Sin breaks down what God wanted to be full of life. And it's in this word paradoxin. It's in this word handed over. It's in this word betrayed. It's in this phrase, God turned us over. We know this was not how it was meant to be, yet God allowed it to be so. But we don't see our hand on the doorknob that we step from life to death. Your fingerprints are not on that doorknob. God is the one that turned that doorknob for you and said, I'll see you out. And it's the same hand of God that holds that doorknob so that it will never shut. It's the same mercy that let us walk, that will enable us, and that welcomes us to come back. So when you see this phrase, God gave them up, this is by no means a picture of God saying, I'm done with you and you can't come back. This is a picture of the mercy of God that allowed us to leave, but that welcomes us back. Exodus chapter 34, listen to how God defines himself. This is, Moses is wanting to know more about God, and he asks God who, what his name is and what, what his heart is, and, and Moses is on the mountain behind a cleft of a rock, and God descends from the mountain, or descends from a cloud, and God is going to define himself, or he's going to proclaim his name, and when he proclaims his name, he gives this long, uh, very familiar uh, definition of himself. So the Lord descended from the cloud, stood with, the, with Moses, proclaimed or defined the name of the Lord. And listen to this. The Lord, the Lord, a God, what's the first word in the sentence? What's the first definition? Merciful. And if that's not enough of an explanation, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Well, aren't those all the same? He wants you to know that he forgives it all. Including these detestable sins and these detestable lifestyles that are listed from Romans one twenty four to one thirty one. Do you follow me here? That the sins that Paul has listed that define humanity at our worst are 
very much still in play for God to forgive in his mercy. It's the mercy of God that allowed us to become these sinners, and it's the mercy of God that welcomes us back as that same sinner and, of course, redeems us and makes us a saint. Now, I want to break these verses down and the, the sin they expose, but first I want to, uh, first, I want to look at, talk about verse 24-25. Verse 24-25 refer to the things that we do to ourselves against God's will. The things that we do that are contrary to what's best for us in spite of the ill will they, Ill will they cause us. The thing about sin is sin makes us senseless. Sin always produces less than God's best and an outcome that we would never have desired. Now, verse 26 through 31 primarily deal with things with respect to others and really with disrespect to others because none of, the, none of these are acts of respect, right? But they deal with things that we do with other people or things that you do with or against other people. But there's something very important for us to understand here about the, the, diff- the transaction that happens when we are not right with God, that that means we're not right with people, that we do things with people that we would not do otherwise. When we don't properly align ourselves with God, we are unaligned with everyone else. When you are not right with God, you will not be right with people. When you're unaligned with God, you'll be unaligned with people. And that shows up specifically in two categories. And verse 26 through 31, the two categories that we see repeated again and again are immorality and animosity. Immorality as in, you know, sexual sins with, towards, against other people, and then animosity with, towards, and against other people. These are sins of moral sins, and they are sins pertaining to our relationship with other people, how we feel towards them, things we do towards them in terms of our hatred, our anger, and all of that. And these verses particularly highlight the most extreme, gross, and distorted ways that immorality and animosity show up in humanity. Now, we talked on Sunday about, how, uh, about this a little bit, and we'll retread it a little bit tonight. All of these that are listed are centered around perversions and breakdowns in relationships, When we're not right with God, we're not right with people. And it plays out differently in our eyes because we do things that are right in our own eyes. Our perspective is different than maybe someone else's perspective. Now, we talked Sunday about how in Genesis, God said that he regretted that he made people because he was seeing what was going on. And that's not him regretting that he made people because he doesn't love us. He was regretful that he made people because of what we were doing with each other and towards each other. Creatures made in his image, sinning with and against each other in his name. It's what the Bible scholar, um, uh, where did I write this down? Gordon Winham refers to as the Genesis's avalanche of sin. Now, if you pay attention to Genesis, and I think Genesis is particularly important to pay attention to because it's just the, it's the very beginning. Sin happens, fall, the fall happens, and the very original people are just headlong into sin, yet God is determined to redeem us nonetheless. But just, just listen to some of the sins that are spotlighted in Genesis. We talked about a few of these Sunday, but we'll go over some more. And I want you to see how they all fall in those categories of immorality and animosity. 
Now, we talked about Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills Abel. That was, of course, out of, he was angry. He had animosity with, with his brother. Uh, Lamech was a serial killer, right? He had animosity towards his neighbors. Uh, and then there's the story of Noah, who after he got off the ark in the new world, uh, he got drunk, and then he uh, fell, you know, fell over, blacked out, and then he was humiliated in his naked state by one of his children. And, and again, that's, that kind of exposes his, uh, his, his, his you know, fallenness and you know, that's under the category of immorality. And then when you get deeper into the story of Abraham, Abraham, the very man that was made, that was called to serve God and start the nation for God, Abraham commits adultery. We all know the story. Abraham commits adultery with Hagar. And that results in Sarah and Hagar being against each other and having animosity for each other. There's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't even have to go into detail there. Of course, a city immersed in immorality and violence as a result of the immorality. There's the conflict of Ishmael and Isaac. There's the conflict of Jacob and Esau. Then there's the immorality of Jacob. Jacob had not one, not two, not three, but four wives, or four, you know, two wives and two uh, mistresses. And that resulted in a great conflict within his family. There's the story of Jacob's daughter, Dinah, who was kidnapped and abused by the Hivites. And then his two sons, Simeon and Levi, raise the city and massacre the people. There's the story of Joseph being betrayed by his brothers. There's the story of Judah's family filled with immorality. And then his daughter-in-law conceives a child with him. If you read Genesis, it's really ground zero for all of these things that this passage in Romans talks about. There's so much infighting and hatred within families, much less the surrounding world, from Joseph's brothers wanting to kill him to Abel being stone-cold murdered before the paint was even dry on the planet. And this isn't an overstatement. Every perverse category can be found in Genesis. Now, why am I pointing that out? Because in the very earliest of days, not in 1990. Not in 2020, and I know things are perverse in 2022, maybe more than they ever have been in some people's eyes, but from the very first generation, mankind has found every way to sin possible. And every perverse category in the book is found in Genesis. I'm not saying that to relieve you from wringing your hands about today's world. I'm just saying that to show you that God has been dealing with the same rotten planet since the beginning. Yet he has a plan, doesn't he? He has a plan. Now, now Romans 1, 18 through 32, expose us in our sin, condemn us in our sin. But chapter 2 is going to change the tune. It's going to change the tune. And Paul's message to us in chapter 2 is as we've read these verses, because here's what happens. When we read verses 24 through 32, we often use these verses to point at the world and talk about how awful the world is and how far gone the world is and how, you know, you know uh, beyond reproach or beyond repair the world is. And Paul wants us to understand that this is the category all of us have been in and are in. You may not be in category verse 27 or 28. You may not be in verse 26. You may not be in verse 29, but you're somewhere in there, aren't you? And we're tempted, and isn't it true, we're tempted to use these verses as an ammunition rather than a mirror. Does that make sense? We're tempted to say, look at these people in these verses, but rather we don't use it as a mirror. Now, 
Don't get me wrong, verse 32 is very clear that we are inexcusable if we practice these lifestyles. But I think it's important that we hear chapter 2's intro to help us understand the full message that Paul's wanting to get across. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, Paul, in verses 24 through 32, was referring to the outside world. And the people that were listening to him, particularly the Jewish people, they were shaking their heads saying, yeah, those filthy sinners, they're the problem. And Paul says, but you who are listening to me, you who I'm writing this letter to, you are inexcusable if you pass judgment on the world for these sins because we are all guilty of these same sins. Is that saying that these sins are not vile and offensive to God? By no means. Paul is just telling us we are not the ones who pass in levy judgment. Now, specifically, he has the Jews in mind. Verse 2, For we know the judgment of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. And do you think, verse 3, Do you think this, old man, who you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And if you wonder what Paul is doing here, he is trying to get us all in the same corner. He doesn't want anybody sitting in the church, and and maybe this isn't the most motivational thing, but he doesn't want anybody sitting in the church thinking that they're not in this category. And the reason for which is because he wants you to be in this category of deserving judgment so that you can hear verse 4. Remember back what we talked about for about 20 minutes? It's the mercy of God that allowed us into this category. Not because he willed it to be, but because it was the choice we made, so God allowed it to happen. That was important for us to make that distinction because of the next verse. Do you despise the riches of his goodness or his kindness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that it's the goodness of God, it's the kindness of God that leads you, that hands you over to repentance? Do you see what's going on here? Paul specifically has the Jews in mind in these verses who condemned the pagans for their immorality and their violence. As we discussed from Genesis, this nature was in all of humanity's blood from the very beginning. What's clear is that Paul is taking anyone's right to judge another away. There is no one who can claim superiority over another. And when he says judge, he's not talking about just pointing someone's wrongs out. He's talking about feeling better about yourself at the expense of somebody else. And the message here is that we all have sinned. And at our worst, we devolve into the state that was listed in those verses above. He's trying to prevent us from excusing ourselves from needing salvation just because we may observe others who sin worse than us or sin in a different way than us. If you read through those, those, the, the rapid-fire ones, verse 29, 30, 31, you may think, well, those aren't as bad as the ones that were hap- listed before, but they still come from a place of defiance toward God. So it's in here that Paul calls us to an important place. The whole time he's talking about God's role in this over us and above us, and this takes us back to God handing us over, and he is now remaining open. God opened the door, but his hand's still on the door to send this message. 
We deserve judgment, but God gives mercy. We deserve wrath, but God shows kindness. And that's how God leads us and produces repentance. And I think it's a pretty incredible revelation, don't you? It is the kindness of God that is meant to hand you over to repentance. Let me read to you some verses from John. If you want to flip over to John 3, you can, but I'm just going to read a few verses that you're very familiar with, I'm sure. These are obviously Jesus' words to Nicodemus that night of their meeting. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Now those famous verses tell us something pretty incredible about the heart of God. That under the umbrella of God taking ownership over every sinner that walks away from him, it's important that we keep in mind when we hear this statement of condemnation, God's grace shines through because the very heart of the gospel expresses that God loves the very world that forsook him. I say all this because if God was so interested in judging us, he would not have sent Jesus to save us. Do you understand that? That if God's primary response to you was judgment, he would not have sent Jesus to go to the extent that he went to to save you. And that includes everybody else too. We are condemned apart from Jesus. God does not owe us an excuse, but he continues to persist in our stories because he still wants us in his story. His approach to us isn't primarily one of judgment and wrath, even though we deserve that. Again, verse 4 says it's kindness and it's love. And a few weeks ago in our Sunday night study, we defined kindness, which I think it's worth remembering. Kindness is loaning someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. So what does it mean that God is good or God is kind? It's that God loans you his strength. And what can you imagine? It's like to be loaned the strength of Almighty God. I mean, what is the strength of God? The strength of God's on display when the resurrection happened, right? The resurrection shows us this is how strong God is. He buried his son in our sin, in our shame, and he defeated that very grave. And, the, and Romans 8 says, the same power that raised Jesus is in you. You know what that means? God's kindness was long to you. Rather than God reminding you of your weakness, because you have a lot of weaknesses, go back and read Romans 1. We are weak. We are sinful. But God has loaned us his strength. So what does that mean? It means that God so loved the world that he loaned us his strength instead of reminding us of our weakness and trapping us in our weakness. And Jesus stands at the very door we walked out of and welcomes us back in. Revelations 3, Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia that you who have a little strength, I have set before you an open door. And later on in, in, in Revelations 3 to the church of Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. He's not pounding at the door. He's not beating at the door. He's knocking because mercy and kindness is of a different nature than ours. 
I think what's important here to note is that often we think that repentance must be forced or coerced or scared out of somebody. Paul says it's God's kindness that produces genuine repentance. The very nature that lets us walk away is the nature that welcomes us back. Now this is, very, this is yet another reminder that God's nature is way, way too pure for us to ever comprehend. I mean, is that something we can agree on? That God's nature is so pure, we cannot comprehend it. We best just hear it and trust his word and obey his word because we will never, ever understand how kind God is and how merciful God is. We will never, ever understand a God who allows us to walk away knowing that we would sin and knowing that our sin would cause his son to suffer. We would never understand a God who would say, you want to wait from me? That's fine, I'll open the door for you. We would never understand a father who would give his son all of his riches and knowing that he was going to waste it on prodigal living. We would never understand a father who would pack his bags for his son and send him to a faraway land and allow him to live riotously and prodigally. We would never understand a God that would do that. Would we? Because that same God waits at the door and when he sees us coming from afar off, he runs at us and hugs us and embraces us and forgives us of the very sin he allowed us to go commit. That is a purity that we will never comprehend and we will never understand, but that is the heart of our God. The mercy of God that allows us to leave and the mercy of God that welcomes us back. And when he says to love people and forgive people and be gracious to people like he's been gracious to us and we say that'll never work, we need to remember that if it was our way, of do, if, we, if things were done our way, we would never get saved and nobody else would either. We judge everyone, we judge ourselves even. And if it was up to us, no one would get saved. Verse 5 through 11 and we're done. In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up wrath in the day for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory honor and immortality but to those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of Jew the Jew first and also the Greek but glory honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek For there is no partiality with God. Now, again, what Paul is doing here, he's trying to make sure that the Jews don't think they're better than the Gentiles. And he's trying to convince the Jews that God, yes, God came to you, Jesus came to you first, but he came to everybody. Yes, the Gentiles sin differently than you, but you're no different than them. And if you think that you're better than them, you'll never understand the mercy that God has for you that he has for them. But he makes it very clear. Of course, there are consequences for rejecting the grace of God. But we must understand first and foremost God's nature towards us and God's gesture towards us. And that's what Paul is trying to establish here in this chapter. All the more reason that we need to heed God's way of doing things and turn to him for mercy. And I want you to hear a few things in closing. Just think about this. God's primary response to our sin is the cross. Do you understand that? 
That God's primary response to your sin, he let you walk away, and because of what you did when you walked away, he took your sin that you committed, and he put it on Jesus, and he hung him on the cross, and he put him in a grave so he could raise him back up, so he could say to you and say to me, you who walked away from me, I am open-armed for you to come back. God's primary response to everybody's sin is the cross. It's the mercy and kindness of Jesus. But make no, make no mistake, God's secondary response to our sin is hell. It is judgment, and it is wrath, as Paul has made clear in this chapter. We all deserve this to be the primary response, but it's God's kindness that took this from one down to two. Now, what Paul's message to us here, and what we'll close around is, shouldn't we follow the same pattern as we deal with other sinners? That's what he said back in verse 1. You're inexcusable if you judge others because don't you know that it's the same sin in you? I pray that we all pause and consider the power of God's kindness and God's mercy. I pray that we understand that it's God's mercy that restrains judgment and it's God's kindness that restrains wrath and it's God's mercy that forgives sin and it's God's kindness that gives strength. And that's God's nature towards you. That's God's response towards your sin. That's God's posture towards you. May we respond to God's mercy and kindness before it's too late, before we are forever left to deal with the fallout of our sin, because if we don't choose Jesus, we will deal with it in God's secondary way. If we do, but if you reject Jesus, you will have stumbled over endless supplies of mercy and grace. I mean, can you, uh, can you imagine, after we've just talked about God's mercy, can you imagine stumbling across that and still ending up in hell? Can you imagine rejecting this kind of mercy when it's the mercy of God and the kindness of God that's given us this chance? That allowed us to be born in sin, allowed us to sin, allowed us to reject God, but then allowed us and welcomed us to come back. May we be sure to share the same level of mercy and kindness to those around us as James wrote in his book. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Look at the cross if you need a reminder. Romans 1 and 2 so far have been a crossroads for humanity. They've showed us at our lowest, and they've showed God at his purest. I mean, I think the only proper response to us for, to this chapter is to be so humbled and to be so overwhelmed by God's purity and by God's mercy. I, I, think, I think we could do what they did in Nehemiah when they worshiped for six hours because they just didn't have anything else to say. It's just too good. We are seen at our lowest, God at his purest. We, have, we see us deserving the worst, and we see God giving his best. We may be a special kind of sinner, but we have a one-of-a-kind God who gives us mercy and great kindness. Thanks be to God for a gift that we could never deserve. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your mercy. Lord, we'll never truly understand and comprehend your mercy. It is your mercy that allows us to be born, to reject you and choose sin. It's your mercy that empowers us with life that we then turn and use against you and sin against you with. 
It's your mercy that sees us walk away, and it's your mercy that waits for us patiently, and it's your mercy that holds the door open, and it's your mercy that welcomes us to come back. It's your kindness that chases after us. It's your kindness that put Jesus on the cross for us. It's your kindness that says to you and says to all of us, there is hope, there is salvation to those that believe. It is the kindness of God that hands us over to repentance. It's the kindness of God that calls calls us to a place of salvation. Lord, I pray you would overwhelm us with your kindness and mercy tonight and help us to see a world that, yes, deserves judgment and, yes, deserves wrath, just like we do, but it's the kindness of God that reaches out to them as it does us. Lord, help us to embrace this kindness and this mercy and help us to live a life of holiness and righteousness in response because you have given us that which we could never deserve. Lord, go with us as we let all this soak in and use it to make us closer to Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.